Father in heaven, we come humbly before your word as your people this morning, Lord, and we pray that you would speak uh, from your word as uh, it tells us that it, it will speak. And Lord, we pray that you would build uh, your church in this place uh, to the ends of the earth by the proclamation of your word, who you are as this sovereign creator king of the universe, what you have done, what you've promised to do, Lord, that those things would be at the center of our hearts and minds, that our affections, our attitudes, our thoughts, our desires in these moments would be fixed on you and you alone. God, would you help us in this time to understand your word well, to apply it to our lives, and that you would reign supreme in these moments. Lord, move distractions. God, we ask that you would speak that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable before you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. In the story of the prodigal son, Jesus tells a story that is quite familiar to most of us, I'm sure, of this one son in particular who goes to his father and he asks his father for his inheritance quite early. Uh, the father gives the inheritance over to the son, and, and you know how the story goes. The son takes the wealth that his father has given him, and he goes off and he squanders it in rebellious living. And as you read that parable, as you listen to that parable, as a, as a listener, as a reader, you know full well what the trajectory of the wayward son is in the story. He is headed to the pit because he is living in rebellion, and that is indeed what happens to the prodigal son. At the end of the story, he's squandered all of his wealth. He finds himself working uh, a pigsty, and he is so hungry, he desires to eat the food that the pigs are eating. And he comes to this realization that his father's servants are not hungry. And here he is, a son of the father, starving, longing to eat the food that is given to pigs. We see throughout the pages of Scripture that rebellious living results in reliable consequences. There are certain sure consequences when the people of God live in rebellion against the ways of God. Let me say it this way. When God's people live in rebellion and sin and do not obey the commands of God, they will find themselves living not under his blessing but under his judgment. This is a hard truth for us to swallow. This is not necessarily something that we like to consider or talk about, but over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God makes it very clear to his people. If you obey my commands, I will bless you. But if you do not obey my commands, I will curse you. I will judge you. We come this morning to the book of Ruth. We're taking a break in our series through the book of Genesis. We'll be in, in this short four-chapter Old Testament book over the next several le weeks leading into the Christmas season. And this morning we will look here at the first five verses of the book of Ruth. And so if you would follow along with me beginning there in verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The setting of the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, and the story of this particular family, Elimelech's family, that we see here in these first five verses is shrouded in the effects of sin. The period in which this book is written in the life of Israel, the famine in the land, the actions of the family, the results of those actions can all be linked to one thing, and that is sin, rebellion against a holy God. And so we must deal with the reality of sin that we find here in these five verses this morning. And so as we consider the text that we just read together, I want us to think about four things that we learn about sin from these five verses. And the first one is this, the consequences of sin are communal. In other words, our sin does not just impact ourselves. The consequences of sin don't just rest on the individual, but the consequences of our sin impact everyone in our sphere of influence. As individuals, sin most certainly impacts us individually. There are consequences for our own sin. But the consequences of sin go out beyond ourselves to those around us. This, is the, the, this first truth that there are consequences for our individual sins are hard enough for uh, the people of our day to understand. Uh, the generation in America right now that is, is rising up uh, seems to have a hard time understanding that there are consequences for our actions. Uh, I was watching a video recently of, of a 19-year-old who got pulled over by a police officer for speeding. He was going 25 miles per hour over the speed limit, and he would not talk to the police officer until his appearance arrived on the scene. And he was distraught at the prospect of receiving a speeding ticket for breaking the law. He could not understand why his behavior would lead to such atrocities, and he was so angry. If it's hard for us in our day to understand that sin has consequences for ourselves, how much more so is it hard for us to understand the corporate implications of our sin? And so children, when you sin, there are consequences that your family feels, your parents will feel. Same thing is true for you, parents. When you sin, your children will feel the consequences of your sin. Now, there are varying degrees of this. Kids, if you lie about studying for a test and fail the test, the, the, uh, the, the consequences that your parents feel will just probably be sadness and frustration with you. But the, the, the greater the sin, the greater the consequences. This is true for us as a local covenant body of Christ as a local church that the sins of the members of this church have consequences on this particular body of Christ and I would pull that out even further and say that the sins of a nation and society can probably be connected to the sins of God's people in that nation 
And here in Ruth, the entire nation of Israel has fallen victim to sin's effect because the people of Israel in this day are living in rebellion. Look what it says there in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. There are potentially no other introductory uh, words in any book of the Bible that are more telling about the time and the period in which the characters are living in. This book takes place in the time when the judges ruled. And this tells us so much about what's happening in the nation of Israel in this time. And so for us, in order for us to understand the book of Ruth moving forward, we need to consider what the context is. So I want you to hold your place there in Ruth. We're going to come back to it here in a moment. But we need to go on a quick journey together to see where the nation of Israel has come from and where they are in this period when the judges rule. So if you turn with me first to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. And here in the book of Deuteronomy, God has brought the nation of Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And he is about to bring them into the promised land, the land that God had promised to their fathers. And he gives them directives. He gives them some commands of things that they must do when they take the promised land. Now we know that this generation was not the one that took the, took the promised land. It would be Joshua's generation that would take the land. But these rules, these, these commands would have been expected of Joshua's generation as well. So listen to what God told the people in Deuteronomy 7 verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. And so God says... I'm going to give you the land and all of these nations, all of these kingdoms that are far mightier than you, I'm going to give them into your hand. And when I do, you must wipe them out. You must rid the land of Canaan of them. Why? Well, we'll look what he says in verse 3. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. God says, if, if you don't clear the land of the nations, your children will follow after their gods. He goes on to say there in verse 4, Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. You must wipe out all of their gods, all of their altars. This is very clear. Very precise what God expects of them when they take the land. So fast forward with me to the book of Judges then. Just a couple books away. Judges chapter 1. And here in Judges we come to the end of Joshua's day. Joshua is the one who led the nation of Israel into the promised land. They've taken the promised land under Joshua's leadership. But in Judges chapter 1 verse 27 notice what they did not do. Judges chapter 1, verse 27. Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh, did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. And you can read on there the, the others that they did not drive out. 
Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. They did not obey the command of the Lord when they came into the promised land and he gave it into their hands. They did not drive out the nation. So look at chapter 2, verse 1 of Judges. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham and he said, I brought you out from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bacham, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now, we talked about last week how Joshua's generation was a, was a generation that loved and served the Lord all their days. But look at verse 10 of chapter 2 at the very end. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. Verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And served the Baals, the gods of the nations. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. So that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Just as God had told them would happen, the, the children of Joshua's generation abandons the Lord and they follow after the gods of the nations. Why? Because they had disobeyed the commands of God. So notice the pattern then of the rest of the book of Judges. We're going to do this real quick, so stay with me. Chapter 3, verse 7 of Judges. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You get the picture. You see the pattern here. Chapter 8, verse 33, as soon as Gideon, who God raised up to deliver them from themselves, as soon as he dies, what do the people do? They turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. This is the pattern over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And we come to the very last verse of Judges. Turn to Judges chapter 21, verse 25. The last verse the verse that comes right before Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and this is the heart of the problem. This is what is happening in the day that the judges ruled in Israel. Listen to verse 25 of chapter 21. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the context of Ruth. Everyone in the nation of Israel is pursuing self and has made self king. So the entire nation feels the effects of sin because instead of submitting to God's ways and his law, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. This is the day in which we live in. 
We live in the day where everyone does what is according to themselves, what is right in their own eyes. And we, as the church in our day, feel the effects of sin in our culture and in our world daily. We are surrounded by rebels and haters of God, and we cannot turn and see a TV screen or a billboard and not be reminded of the weight of the sinfulness and the fallenness and the wickedness in the world that surrounds us in our day. We live in the day where people do what is right according to their own eyes. And we feel the the weight of that. The second thing that we come to see about sin here in the passage is that the judgment of sin is inescapable. Now, in one sense, when we think about the final judgment, when we die and and leave this earth and pass on into eternity, or when Christ comes on that final judgment, that, that the weight and the burden of sin that we bear is inescapable in and of ourselves. This is true. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to escape the the judgment of sin that we deserve. But here we're not talking about the final judgment. But here we're talking about this temporary worldly judgment that we see on the nation of Israel here. When God's judgment comes on a nation or a people, everyone is impacted, including the righteous. And so just as in our day we feel the effects of sin and wickedness and rebellion in our day, so too when we come under the judgment of God as a nation, even the righteous in the nation feel the weight of God's judgment. We see this here in the text. Look again at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Elimelech and his family and all the others in the land feel the effect of God's judgment. Famine is most always associated with God's judgment in Scripture. I believe full well that this is a direct judgment of God on the nation of Israel because of the rebellion of this day. And what's so ironic about this is Elimelech and his family are from Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Bethlehem was known for this bountiful supply of wheat and barley and olives and almonds and grapes. And so if Bethlehem is feeling the weight of this famine, surely this is the judgment of God. God judges rebellious peoples and nations. And so Elimelech feels the impact of this. And what does he decide to do? It goes on to say in verse 1, he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He left the confines of the promised land to go off into a foreign land to find relief for his family. I think in our modern day with our modern minds and the sciences and all of the things that we have, we don't like to consider God's judgment in view of the trials that we face in this life. And so when there is a a famine in the land or we don't have rain, we tend to want to attribute it to weather patterns. And we don't want to think that it could possibly be the judgment of God. Elimelech feels the impact of this. And even though we don't like to consider it as God's judgment, we see that throughout the Bible and throughout human history, God is doing things in this world and in economies and with weather to bring about his discipline and his chastisement. And so any potential discipline of God that we could face as the people of God should remind us of this. 
So when we face trials, when we face famine, when we face storms and, and persecution in this life and suffering, as the people of God, our response should not be to shake our fist at God or to question why we of all people deserve this. Why do we have to feel the weight of your judgment in our day? But rather, at the prospect of God's judgment, we should respond with humility and repentance. When we come under the potential judgment of God, the chastisement of God, the discipline of God, it should cause us to humble ourselves before him. We see this throughout the book of Psalms with, with David. In particular, I think of, of Psalm 38, where David is sick and he's broken and he is, he's being crushed from every side. And instead of being angry at God or shaking his fist at God or wondering why God would cause him to face this suffering, what does David do time and time again in the Psalms? He admits his sin. And he does so by acknowledging that God hates sin and punishes sin. And so in the face of suffering, what does David do? He confesses his sin and he repents and turns from his sin. Again, we feel the weight of this in our day. I would say that we as a country, the United States of America, are under the judgment of God. Now, we're not going to get into the details of that because there's probably differing views as to the extent of that judgment. But I think if you just watch the news for five minutes, you would come to see that we as a country are under the divine judgment of God. Now, it's important for us to note here for just a moment that we are not Israel. We are not a unique nation to God in the sense that we have, God has made a special covenant with us. There has only been one nation in the history of the world that God has made covenantal promises with, and that is the nation of Israel. There's nothing about America that makes us different than any other nation or country that's ever existed on this earth other than the fact that God has clearly blessed this country throughout its history as we have strived to be a Christian nation. But we are not Israel, we are not a covenant nation, but this is true. Any nation or people that blatantly rejects God and his laws will not last long. And so when we find ourselves coming under the correction of God or the discipline of God, even if it's not for anything that we have done, but because of people around us, it is always a chance for us to humble ourselves before the Lord. And so God brings moments of despair and, and moments of suffering and moments of discipline into our lives, not so that we make more of ourself, but so that we might admit our need for him and make much of him. We see this throughout the pages of Scripture. The, the prodigal son that I mentioned at the beginning had to be made low so that he would look to God to deliver him. You think of the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, who goes into Jerusalem and he brings all these Israelites back to Babylon with him. And he's this wicked pagan king and yet God brings Nebuchadnezzar to this low point where he's eating grass on the side of the hill like a beast of the field. And in that moment he is humbled to this low place and what does he do? He repents and he looks to Yahweh and believes in him. And so when we feel the weight of God's judgment in our day, we must do this. We must declare spiritual bankruptcy. We must come before the holy God of the universe and say, Lord, we 
are dead in our trespasses and sin. We have nothing to offer in and of ourselves to appease you. It is only by your grace and your grace alone that we can find hope. We are nothing apart from the Lord intervening on our behalf. The third thing that we see here about sin is that the pursuit of sin is infectious. When everyone around you is living in blatant sin, it is easy for us to fall in step. And we see that here with Elimelech and his family. Look there about halfway through verse 1. It says, A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. We see here Elimelech just falling in step with everybody else in Israel in these days. He's trying to do things in and of himself. And so notice the progression here. Where, where does he flee to? He flees to Moab. Now, he has a choice here at this point in the story to either stay in the promised land or to go. And the choice that is before him, theologically, is not an equal choice. There is a clear answer for Elimelech here to choose. And the answer is he needs to remain in the promised land. We just came out of Genesis where we saw Abraham at the end of his days over and over and over again trying to secure what? That his family remains where? In the promised land. And so the prospect here for Elimelech is not choosing between New York and L.A. You can live for the Lord in either of those places, although I would argue it would be really hard. You should probably live in Texas. But by leaving the promised land, he's saying something very profound about the state of his heart. He's not trusting and resting in the promises of God that we saw so clearly in the life of Abraham at the end of those chapters we've been looking at in Genesis. He, he takes things into his own hands, and he goes to Moab of all places. The Moabites are wicked people. Listen to some of the things about Moab that we know. That relationship that Lot had with his daughter in Genesis that we looked at several weeks ago, they, the Moabites are the descendants of that terrible uh, atrocity that happened with Lot and his daughter. Their king, the king of the Moabites, hired Balaam to do one thing, to curse Israel. The Moabite women are seducing the men of Israel. The, the gods of the Moabites are seducing the people of Israel. In Judges chapter 3, we see the Moabites oppressing Israel. And this is where Elimelech takes his family in the midst of the famine. Something you need to know here about Elimelech is that his name means God is my king. But Elimelech's actions prove otherwise. God is not Elimelech's king. Elimelech is Elimelech's king. And so he takes his family into this foreign land, and what does he do there? He dies. And so his wife and his two sons are forced to settle there in the land, and they take Moabite wives for themselves, clearly disobeying the command of God to not marry foreign women. His family is caught up in the Moabite way. And what was potentially meant to be a quick trip, just a sojourning in the land, the father's choices proved to put his family at complete risk when he dies. And so Naomi and her sons, like Lot and Sodom, are existing in complacency in the sin that surrounds them. And so it's no surprise 
that Elimelech fled to Moab. It's no surprise that his sons married Moabite women. This is par for the course in the days when the judges ruled. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Instead of being holy to God, instead of being set apart to God, they are living for self and for the world. As we look at the church in our day, it's no surprise that the statistics of sin that are represented in the confines of the church are the same as the statistics for sin that we see in the lost and dying world around us. It's no surprise in our day that we see denominations and pastors and churches affirming homosexuality as good and right according to God's word. It's not surprising because for decades, the church in America has dressed like the world and talked like the world and eaten like the world and played like the world and done church just like the world tells us to. This is the state of this place in which we reside in. And we see this because sin is infectious. Just a couple of weeks ago, a prominent evangelical pastor who is the son of one of the greatest evangelical preachers of our day hosted a conference at his church where he invited two openly gay pastors to share with his church his congregation on the topic of homosexuality and what came of this conference was very much a gay affirming agenda from this one who has been seen for many years as a prominent figure in the evangelical church in our day. And for years, people have been concerned for this brother and saying, look, his, his doctrine is just not right. It's off. His teaching on the word of God is off. Something's not right. And when people raise concern, others would say, no, don't be a critic. His father is this particular man. There's no way. And yet we see this transition and following in step with the lost and dying world because of the pressure of sin and its, its ability to infect our minds and our thoughts. We must flee from sin, church. We must kill sin. We should have nothing to do with the ways of man as the church. The final thing that we see here about sin is that the result of sin is death. Just like with God's judgment being inescapable in our final days, in one sense, all of death is a result of sin. At the fall, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit in the garden, death enters into the world. So not only do they die spiritually, and then all of their descendants are born spiritually dead, death then physically comes to them. And so everyone who lives on this earth will face the prospect of death. It is the result of sin. It is the result of the fall. But this isn't necessarily what we're talking about here in these five verses. Because sometimes we do see in Scripture that death is connected to a particular unrepented sin. Now, it's important for us to stop here for just a moment and say this. Death is not always connected to a particular unrepented sin. So it's not helpful to go to the funeral of a family member and say, well, I wonder what sin it was that got them. That's not the view that we have here. This could be said of suffering as well. When, when someone is suffering, we tend to want to think, well, I wonder what sin is in their life that's causing them to suffer. This is not helpful. This is not right. We see this in the life of Job, who was under tremendous suffering, and we know why. 
Because God was doing something behind the scenes, and we're told at the beginning of Job that he was a righteous man. And yet, what do his friends do? They come on the scene and they say, Job, there must be some sin in your life because you are suffering so greatly. We'll talk more about suffering next week, but one, one Puritan pastor said this, One may suffer and not sin, but it is impossible to sin and not suffer. We can see this in death as well. Not every person's death is attributed to one particular sin. But hear this. This this is the sobering reality I want us to consider. We do see people throughout Scripture who God takes their life as a direct result of a particular sin. We, We see this even in the New Testament. People who openly rebel against God and God takes their life. Now, We do not know with any certainty that the death of these three men, Elimelech and his two sons, are directly connected to any particular unrepented sin because the writer does not tell us that. But here's what I would say. It is not beyond God's work to do that. And I believe as the the original Israelite audience read verses 1 through 5, they come to verse 5 and it says, Mahlon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And it would have caused the people of God to stop and pause and humble themselves before the sovereign king of kings and realize their brokenness. This is a call for us to realize the weight of our sin and the severity of our sin against our covenant God. So here's what we need to understand here, I think, in considering the death of these three men, is that sin will not go hidden. Numbers 32 verse 23 says this, you have sinned against the Lord, your sin will find you out. Luke 12 2, nothing is hidden that will not be made known. Proverbs 26, 26, wickedness will be exposed. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, God will bring every secret thing into judgment. More importantly, Scripture teaches us that nothing is hidden from God. Jeremiah 16, 17, my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. In Hosea chapter 7, God speaks about how the deeds of the people are before his face. He sees, he knows, nothing is hidden from him. And as we read these five verses, we share with that the the weight of what we see here with that original Israelite audience as they read these five verses and we consider what Paul says in Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Their deaths should humble us this morning. The the death of these three men should humble us this morning before a holy God to realize our sinfulness and our rebellion and confess our sin and repent and return to him. Elimelech falls in line with the world and he pursues his own ways, what is best in his own eyes, And just like Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, we today bear the name of Christian, which means little Christ. 
And yet so often the decisions that we make and the choices we make in this life as Christians say otherwise. So often the actions that we, 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 we do in this life say not that God is our king, but that we are our own king. So what do we do this morning? What is the application for the weight of sin and, and the prospect of sin that we see here in these five verses? It's threefold. First, we must repent. All throughout the pages of Scripture, the remedy for rebellion is repentance. Even when it was the people around them who are causing the, the, the wickedness and the, and the consequences and the judgment of God, the people of God are still called to repentance. And just as we talked about this time last year, as we walked through the penitential psalms, we should always come before the Lord with hearts of contrition, not waiting till we get caught in sin to confess our sin, but to confess and repent of our sin each and every day, knowing the weight of our sin against a holy God. We must repent. But then secondly, we must turn to Christ. His ways are good. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. His laws are our delight. His precepts give us life and hope. We must trust in him and turn to him and obey him in all things. Not abandoning the teachings that he gives us and the commands that he gives us and the truth that we find in his word. We must run to his word. We must submit to his ways. Not allowing the culture and the world around us to define how we act and how we operate. But submitting completely to Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. So we repent today. We turn to Christ and then finally we preach Christ to a lost and dying world. The remedy for the problem of our day and the wickedness that surrounds us is not to be found in politics and methods and, and procedures. It is to be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. The hope for this lost and dying world, this wicked world in which we live in, is found in Jesus Christ alone. And the work that he did on the cross to die for wretched sinners like you and I and he rose victoriously from the grave over sin and death. And if we believe in him, we will find life eternal. So what do we do under the prospect and the weight of sin this morning that we see here in verses 1 through 5? We repent, we turn to Christ, and we preach Christ to a lost and dying world. The story of Ruth and these simple four chapters that we'll look at over the next several weeks is a story of redemption. You'll see this in the coming weeks. This story is all about redemption and restoration and the hope that we find in this God who saves. But before we can get to the hope of restoration in the book of Ruth, we must first consider the prospect of sin. The story of redemption begins with a gloomy prospect. We find here three husbandless women. We find here three women who are without children. We find this one woman in particular who is left all alone in a foreign land. And at the beginning of the book of Ruth, in these first five verses, the possibility of redemption and restoration seems impossible. It seems unlikely. But I love what one commentator had to say of this. He said, God's judgment on sin is reliable for his word is faithful. Meaning that God will judge sin because he's promised to by his word. But then listen to what the commentator says next. 
But even more consistent is God's desire to restore wandering sinners to himself. Grace is always God's last word. That's the hope that we share this morning in the face of sin. The hope of redemption is on the horizon in the book of Ruth, and the hope of redemption is real today as we gather in this place. And so as you come here into this this room this morning, no matter how far you have wandered off into rebellion, no matter how far you have wandered off into Moab and become comfortable with the Moabite way of life, no matter the weight of sin's consequences that you are feeling today in your life, hear this today, there is hope to be found in Christ. Stop resting in yourself. Stop looking to Elimelech's way of living to find hope. Elimelech left the promised land for the false hope of Moab. Elimelech went into exile to build his own life by his own means, and he failed miserably, as we will time and time again if we try to do things in our own strength. But consider what Christ did. Christ left heaven He humbled himself and became a man to bring us hope in this life. Christ exiled himself from the very presence of the Father to rescue sinners like you and I. So the message this morning is to stop trying to overcome the certainty of death in your own strength, in your own power. But look to Christ today because he has conquered sin and death once and for all and brought us victory over death, by grace through faith alone. Let's pray.